the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at Let's Talk Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre recorded. Once you were like this, but now you're different. Now you're new creatures in Christ. You're, you don't live the old way. You, you don't have the old man. So, so now in contrast to what you were, now you are to live a different way. It's just, just a contrast. Once you behave like this, but now you have a new life. And this new life in Christ demands that you put aside certain sins. We like our sins well organized. We sort them in orders of severity. At one extreme are those sins so grievous that we pass laws against them, some with severe punishments. Other sins fall along a continuum until we come to those sins that most of us don't even think of as wrong. Sins of the tongue are among those socially acceptable sins. Hi, I'm Jerry Pruden. Welcome to Verse by Verse. I'm glad you can join us for another Bible lesson by Pastor Steve Kreloff. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Washington Irving said that a sharp tongue is the only edged tool that grows sharper with use. That is not good, but it sure is true. If we want to make progress in becoming more holy, one of the biggest enemies we need to conquer is our own tongue. If you can do so, I hope you'll grab your Bible and a notepad. Pastor Steve has some great help for us right from God's Word. If I were to ask each one of us today what you thought was the appropriate way to dress for church, we would have some uh, rather strong opinions, some rather diverse opinions. Uh, Some would say uh, that uh, you must dress up your best for the Lord. Some would say, certainly there's no question about it, you have to uh, dress your best. For men, that would be a suit and tie. Uh, for women, the, the real nice dress. And, and then we could say, well, how should ushers dress? What about those who serve communion? Uh, should they have to wear a tie? Should they uh, have to have a, a jacket? Um, what, what about shorts? Oh, someone's, oh, horrible. You couldn't wear shorts in church. What about sandals? What about slacks? Uh, we could have and probably would have some rather uh, stirring debates about this, some spirited discussions, as some would be rather dogmatic on this, but with all of our dogmatism and all of our spirited uh, talking, we would come to absolutely no conviction, come to no biblical conclusion, because the only thing the Bible says about the way to dress for church is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, and then he explains modestly and discreetly. First Corinthians 11 speaks about a woman in Corinth wearing a head covering as a symbol of submission to her husband. But beyond these basic guidelines from Scripture for women, we're on our own as far as deciding how to dress for church. Why? Because it's what we would call a liberty issue. There is no right or wrong. 
you're up. You're up to. It's up to your own opinion. In fact, uh, it's very cultural. It's very cultural. Uh, in France, when I ministered there and, and spoke, uh, very casual. And in, in Italy, as I'm asking, uh, what what should I wear as I get into the pulpit? Uh, don't get dressed up like you would in America. You'll look odd. I already look odd, but uh, you don't want to look any more odd than you normally do. So so it's very casual. Uh, but it's interesting to me that while many, uh, and, and this is cultural, but many American Christians have strong and even dogmatic feelings about what kind of clothing to wear to church, uh, the scripture is basically silent on this, on this subject. Uh, however, they tend to be ignorant that God has spoken clearly on what spiritual clothing to wear when going to church. And, uh, and so we can be very dogmatic on one thing that the Bible is silent on, and yet uh, we would be very ignorant on what God has said specifically. And you say, what, what, are we, what are you talking about? I'd like you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. In our ongoing study of Paul's letter to the church at uh, Colossae, we come to a portion of Scripture in which Paul tells us how to dress for church. Not physically, but spiritually. What you ought to wear for church in a spiritual sense. And I'd like to read it to you, Colossians chapter Uh, 3 verses 8 through 11. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. I want you to notice in these verses how often Paul uses the expression either of put on, uh, put off, lay aside. He says it in verse 8, but now you also put them all aside. He says in verse 9, at the end, since you laid aside the old self. Verse 10, the beginning have put on the new self. Uh, these are all expressions that were used in other places to speak of clothing. Paul is using the language of taking off certain clothing and putting on other clothing. It's an analogy. He, he's not giving us a list of how to physically dress in church, but using the analogy or the language of discarding old worn out, filthy clothing and putting on new clothing, he's using that in order to convey that a new life in Christ demands that we put aside the remnants of an old life and put on the practices of new behavior. So it's not a dress list physically, but it is a dress list spiritually, what you ought to take off, and then later he'll say what we ought to put on. In fact, this is this is very interesting because uh, oftentimes in the Bible, we read about God using the imagery of clothing to indicate character. For example, think with me about how many times we read that we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's an expression that comes out of the Old Testament. The priests were to be clothed with righteousness. Psalm 132, verse 9. Isaiah 11, verse 5 says, Righteousness will be the belt around his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Psalm 109, verse 29, let my accusers be, accusers be clothed with dishonor and let them cover themselves with their own shame as with a robe. Psalm 73, verse 6, 
Uh, pride is, is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. And even in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, speaks about running the, the race of the Christian life. And it says that we're to lay aside every encumbrance. So that's all in the imagery of, of uh, clothing being used to describe character. Bad character, lay it aside. Good character, put it on. In fact, in the early church, you'd be interested to know this, that it was customary for those who were being baptized to lay aside their old clothing uh, because it represented the old way of life. And after they were baptized in the in the waters of immersion, they would give them uh, a new set of clothing representing new life in Christ. So that was all very much a part of the early church and their thinking. And it really flows out of this portion of Scripture. So with this in mind, we need to understand that Paul is telling us that just as you would take off old clothing and put on new clothing, you need to take off old and sinful behavior, lay it aside and put on righteous behavior. This is the ongoing battle for holiness. And in context, what he's saying is don't listen to the false teachers who've come along and told you that if you really want to be holy, you've, you've got to be very legalistic. You've got to have policies that you impose on yourself. Spirituality is not external. But that's what they were being taught. He's, he's also saying, by way of context, spirituality doesn't come by way of some mystical inner experience, some subjective experience. He's also saying, by way of context, that it's not involved with asceticism, just denying yourself certain pleasures of, of the flesh, and, and then you will be spiritual. No, he's talking about inwardness and, and inner realities and internal attitudes. And he says, with the old sinful stuff, lay it aside and put on the new righteous behavior. Now, last week we saw in verse 5 that Paul addressed the sins of sensuality, sexuality. And in that verse, as I read verse 5, he said, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Not the best translation, because in the original language, what he is saying is execute these, these sins in your life. Execute them, kill them. Don't just consider them dead. You kill them. You slay them. You put those things to death by an act of your will. Now, in verse in verse eight, he changes the analogy. And rather than execute, he's simply saying in other descriptive words, lay them aside. So he's using different language to get across to us that just get rid of them in your life. Uh, repent and, and do something different. And and in verse uh, verse eight and following, what he's talking about is not so much sexual sin. In fact, he's not talking about that. Now, he's talking about the sins of anger, hatred, uh, evil speech, attitudes of, of animosity. And uh, how are we to deal with them in the ongoing battle for holiness? Lay these sins aside like you would lay aside old, filthy garments. Now, just like last week, the pattern is, is this. First, Paul gives us a command. He tells us what sins to lay aside specifically, and then he gives us some reasons for laying these sins aside. And that's good because it's, it, it motivates us. God could have just commanded us to do these things without giving us any inner motives, but he, in his mercy and, and grace, knows that uh, motives are good for us, and so he gives us that. And then after that, as we'll see, Lord willing, uh, next week, verses 12 through 14, tells us what to put on. So this week we see what to put off, and then next week, we'll see what to put on. For example, read with me as I, as I look at verse 12, 13, and 14. 
And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So you, you, you see the language, take off, put on. Now this week, we'll only look at what we're to, what we're to uh, take off. And so as we begin, we're going to see in the ongoing battle of holiness, how do we uh, lay aside the sins of anger, hatred, and evil speech? Paul says, put them aside. So let's, let's begin by looking at verse 8. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. And then in verse 9, do not lie one to another. Now, notice, before Paul mentions the specific sins of, of hatred, the sins that I just, I just read, he, he starts off by saying, but now. Why does he do that? Because in the previous verse, which we'll, which we'll look at, verse 7, in them you also once walked when you were living in them. It's a contrast. Once you were like this, but now you're different. Now you're new creatures in Christ. You're, you don't live the old way. You don't have the old man. So, so now in contrast to what you were, now you are to live a different way. It's just, just a contrast. Once you behave like this, but now you have a new life, and this new life in Christ demands that you put aside certain sins. Now, before we look at those specific sins, I, I, I want us to keep two things in mind, which would be very helpful. You should take notes. Number one, the sins associated with speech, it seems to me, and, and anger and hatred don't seem to bother us like they should. I know that's that's true of you. I know it's true of me. And I think the reason they don't bother us is because we're so used to them. It's kind of, isn't this the norm? Isn't this normal to be angry? Anger, critical spirit, gossip, lying, unwholesome humor. Uh, isn't this normal? I think some of us have lived that way so long, we take it for granted. We're not convicted anymore. We're accustomed to it. And so what I would suggest right now, before we go any further, you in your heart, just lift up a prayer to the Lord to ask him to make you, uh, to convict you and to make you aware of what is sinful, to make you sensitive to what, to what he wants changed in your life. It was G. Campbell Morgan who called these the, the sins in good standing. And let me explain what he meant. What he meant is this. If you heard of a church member who was involved in sexual immorality, you would be uh, deeply hurt by that. You would uh, be annoyed at that. Uh, you would be deeply angered over that in the right sense of anger and shocked. But if that same church member happens to lose his temper in a church business meeting, it doesn't seem to disturb us. It's the way of evangelicals. It wouldn't shock us, whereas immorality would. That's what I'm saying. We've grown accustomed to it. We're used to it. We live in a very angry world. And we need to be careful that we don't accept those standards of anger as uh, something that God says is all right just because it's so natural. So it's the first thing you need to keep in mind. This is abnormal. This is not right. Secondly, Paul says to lay these sins aside, which means that we can do it. God doesn't tell a believer to do anything that he's incapable of doing. Uh, there are, and what that means is there are no excuses for anger. And we all have excuses that, that we think justify it. For example, I just explode and then everything is all right. No, it's not all right. Well, I just get it out of my system. Yeah, but you dumped on someone else. It's a sin. 
You may feel good about it, which is neither here nor there how you feel, but you've just sinned. But there's an excuse. Well, I just explode and then, and then I'm fine. Yeah, but that person you exploded to isn't fine. And you've grieved the Holy Spirit. I'm just fiery by personality. You know, I have that kind of ethnic genetic makeup. And uh, that's just me. My parents were like that. My grandparents were like that. It'll never change. It better change if you're a believer or you're grieving the Spirit of God. You, you, yeah, you have a genetic makeup. You're, you're called a sinner. That's your genetic makeup. Yeah, it's your grandparents going back to Adam and Eve. That's the problem. But so don't, don't pass it off on uh, what color hair you have, what genetic makeup you have, what your parents were like, your grandparents. Uh, that's an excuse. I don't mean anything by it. What does that mean? I don't mean anything by it. But that's an excuse. Yeah, person, I don't mean anything by it. It's just the way I am. Well, change. Because God says it. I may have a, a short fuse, but I don't hold any grudges. Well, good for you. I have a short, I have a short, I don't hold any grudges. What does that mean? Uh, what it means is I'm trying to justify my sin of anger. And that's all it means. No excuses. If you're going to obey this portion of Scripture, just eliminate every single excuse. Well, someone yells back at me. So what does that mean? It means that they've sinned too. They'll answer to the Lord for it. You are standing before God and he's speaking to you and telling you what to do about your sin. It's not anybody else's problem. It's your sin. If they choose to disobey God, then they choose to and they'll answer to the Lord. You have to be determined to obey Christ. And uh, and and that's it. So first, what we're going to do is we're going to look at each sin that Paul lists. And these are these are not exhaustive. It's not an exhaustive list. And then we'll give some practical ways to put these sins aside. So first of all, he says in verse 8, he says to put aside anger. Anger, what, is, what does that mean? This word doesn't simply mean to be annoyed. That's not what the word means at all. But it is a burning anger. The Greek word uh, is an inner anger. It's the same word used in verse 6 of God's wrath. It's anger with the intensity of fire. It is a burning, smoldering anger beneath the surface. It is a settled heart anger, smoldering hatred. Ephesians chapter 4, which is, by the way, a parallel passage of Colossians 3. In many ways, Ephesians verse 431 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. There's no place in the believer's life for this. James chapter 1. Verse 19 speaks about man's anger. James 1, verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Anger. It is an, it is an inner, it is, it is beneath the surface. There are some people who uh, they may not be quick to express the anger, but they're always doing a slow burn. That's what this, that's what this word is. In fact, uh, it's just beneath the surface, and if you happen to hit a nerve, it pops out. And that's the second word, wrath. Wrath. Uh, wrath comes from anger. It is an explosion Explosion because of, of it's being built up inside. It's so great, and you happen to come along and say something, and boom, you get it. It's explosion. Wrath means a sudden outburst of anger. The thought is that of rage. Rage. 
When we speak of someone exploding in anger, this is what that Greek word means. And in fact, it's used very interesting in uh, in the New Testament. It is used in Luke chapter four, verse 28, when Jesus went back to Nazareth and began to tell them that he was the Messiah. And then uh, they, they had a problem with that. And then he started telling them God's blessings upon uh Gentiles as opposed to Jewish people, and uh, they were enraged. They wanted to throw them off the cliff. That's the very word that's used. It's a, it's explosive outburst. It's also the very Greek word used in Acts chapter 19, verse 28, when Paul at Ephesus was so successful in preaching the gospel, they got the message that, that the uh, tradesmen were very annoyed because People, if they followed Christianity, would not buy their little idols that they that they made and sold, and they were enraged at Paul. It was explosive. They wanted to kill Paul. They wanted to kill Jesus. That's the word here. It's what we would call someone who had a temper tantrum. That's that's the thought. Furious. It would describe a quick-tempered individual. It would be wrath. The third word that Paul uses is malice. This word means a bad attitude. It's basically a bad attitude that is determined to do harm to another person. It isn't just attitude. It, it's an attitude of ill will towards another person. It's a vicious disposition. It, it's that, that spirit of getting even. Of getting even. It's a person who says, I don't just get mad, I get even. That's malice. In other words, it's the evil inclination of the mind, the kind of mind that plans to do evil to another person. That's malice. It's what we call being malicious. The fourth word that Paul uses is slander. This is to insult a person. This is uh, now we're moving from attitudes to speech because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So slander, this is to insult a person. Uh, it, it is a uh, harmful speech, speech that tears another person down. To speak evil of someone would be to slander. Instead of biblically resolving this conflict, it uh, we insult the other person we have a conflict with. That's what slander is. It's also, by the way, the same Greek word that we would translate to blaspheme God. It's to blaspheme God, but when it's used of individuals, it, it speaks, it's better translated slander. It's hard to exactly blaspheme another individual. So, uh, but, but you get the point. Speaking ill of God would be blaspheme. Speaking blasphemy, speaking ill of someone else would be slander, another individual. Then Paul says, well, well let's look at this slander, by the way. Ephesians chapter 4. Once again, see what the apostle says in verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. That word unwholesome would, would come, slander would come under that. It means rotten, corrupt. Uh, like rotting fruit, good for nothing. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. So Paul in this context is, say, is saying, don't use speech that would tear down, but build up. And how do you know what speech builds up? Well, because of the need of the moment. You know people and you know what they what they need and give them encouraging words. Let all bitterness and wrath and clamor and slander be put away from you. He says in verse 31, but go back to verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That is to say that slander and these attitudes absolutely grieve the Spirit of God. That, that's a heavy thought. We're grieving the Holy Spirit. Why? Because this is not holy. It's unholy. Popular, but unholy. And then Paul says abusive speech. Abusive speech, slander moves into it. In fact, it all moves along. But abusive speech is just filthy talk. When we some, say someone is foul-mouthed, that's what we mean. 
uh, in today's language, we would say they're cursing. Uh, it's dirty talk. It's it's cursing someone. Uh, I understand about that. Um, I was I was raised in Brooklyn, New York, and um, until I was converted, you could say I, I knew gutter talk, and uh, I'm ashamed of it. But I very much understand what abusive speech is. In fact, I was accused of corrupting a whole Jewish camp. Uh, that's right. That's right. Uh, I'm not proud of that, but I understand when Paul speaks about it. And one of the first things that God convicted me of after I came to Christ was abusive speech. But this is obscene, derogatory speech. It's designed to hurt someone, designed to hurt someone. Uh, There is no place in the Christian life for this. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4, there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but, but rather giving of thanks. So be grateful to God. Don't, don't curse. Don't curse. In my 16 years of secular work, I heard the phrase, pardon my French, countless times. I appreciated their consideration of my feelings, but I also tried to always take a moment to tell my co-workers that was not my pardon that he needed. God has high standards for our behavior, our speech, and our attitudes. Pastor Steve Kreloff will have more on the subject on the next Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve is the senior pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. These radio versions of his messages are produced by Verse by Verse Ministries. We're on the web at versebyverseradio.org. If you'd like to listen to this entire three-part message, it's available on CD or cassette. To order yours, call 727 727- Two three nine zero three zero six. The old adage is true. If you tell the truth all the time, I can believe you all the time. But if you lie to me just once, I can never believe you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.